Live from Your Mind Productions presents On the Threshold. Episode 5, Civilized Part 2. Welcome back to the Glazer Files. We're continuing with Dr. Powell's 1887 report to the Home Office. One element I found particularly interesting about this section is that despite how regressive Powell's medical theories in general were, his understanding of psychology seems to have been ahead of its time. Dr. Applegate read through the files herself and noted several insights of his that seemed to be impressive for the era, and he was clearly a keen observer of human nature. I imagine this social aptitude was helpful in securing his upper-crust clientele. Also, quick note, Dr. Powell mentions what he calls the Traveler family. Travelers are a nomadic Irish ethnic group that travels the United Kingdom, a bit like the Romani, who you might know by the slur gypsies. Like the Romani, they were, and still are, subject to suspicion, prejudice, and persecution, and it seems that Dr. Powell shared in the bigotry of his time, considering that he didn't even bother to write down their names, unlike the names of his patients, church, and government officials, and others he considered important enough to actually pay attention to. Let's jump back in. August 7th, 1887. Church's patron saint festival was quaint and lovely, with adorable little garlands for all the children. It's unfortunate that Baron Erasmus Brown had to miss it, having slipped into a malaise this morning. I can certainly understand why his sister would prefer that the townsfolk not see him in such a state. Alexandra certainly made a showing enough for the two of them, though, especially with Adamant's assistance and his demonstrable showmanship. It seems that she has taken on the promises that Adamant made for the family yesterday, and gave a speech about how the Browns would help revitalize the town by raising funds for a coal mine and a railroad. Personally, I am skeptical that the Browns have the capital to make such investments or the social standing to draw other investors. But I admire her strength of spirit, and her pronouncements raise the townsfolk's hope. Unfortunately, her proclamations also seem to draw potential pecuniary parasites of the Pavi persuasion. A traveler woman, clutching a babe and with two children at her sides, claimed to have a 
dire vision of a dark curse upon the Browns, only to be hushed by her husband, drawing Alexandra's attention, as I suspect was intended. At this point, Constable Wiggs intervened. He seemed to have already been deeply irked by Adamon's presence at the festival and the admiring attention the townsfolk lavished upon him. I imagine he has heretofore been quite comfortable in his role as the town's strongest man and resolute symbol of authority, and is unhappy with this challenger. Unable to strike against Adamon, he dispensed his anger upon the Traveler family, declaring his intention to throw them out of town for harassing a noble and overstaying their time at the market. Whether moved by compassion or curiosity, Alexandra defended the family from the constable's verbal onslaught, which I'm sure only deepened his resentment. Though I am unsure how exactly it started, Word then soon spread of the Browns holding a fair for the children tomorrow at their castle, centered around shows of Adamon's muscular prowess. The children were immediately taken with this idea, and it soon earned Alexandra's endorsement, though I would fear that the townsfolk seeing the decrepitude of the castle might dispel their notions of the Browns as their saviors. However, it is not my place to be their advisor in such matters. I enjoyed further exchanges with the townsfolk and concluded the evening with a hike around the idyllic moors to the west of the town. Addendum I am uncertain if it was that day that Alexandra arranged for the Traveller family to live on the Browns' land, or if that arrangement was made on the following day. Nor can I be certain when precisely Alexandra's plans for the Traveller's youngest child began to take place but I suspect it was not yet. August 18th, 1887. I was awakened most rudely by what I first mistook in my dreams to be an avalanche, but which was, in truth, Adamon moving fallen stones around the castle in preparation for his performances. Unfortunately, once more, Baron Erasmus was still too melancholic and distant to attend the event, but perhaps that was for the best to avoid stirring unwholesome desires. Even I must admit to having been drawn in by the show itself once the strong man began to entertain the hordes of children. He performed rather astounding feats, such as lifting massive stone weights, bending steel bars, smashing boulders, and lifting a dozen children perched on a board with his knees. Naturally, the constable showed up to the show, quote, to ensure good public order, end quote. But then he all too quickly accepted Adamon's challenge of a wrestling match. By the end, the constable refused to yield and was left comatose on the ground, to the squealing delight of the children, who have come to revere Adamon as an idol of strength and showmanship. Naturally, once the show concluded, the children carried on imitating his feats, playing games throughout the castle's outer ruins.
This almost led to tragedy when a section of floor long disused collapsed to the screams of children and the few attending parents alike. Adamin burst in on the scene and leapt down into the caves below to rescue a young girl who had fallen into them. He emerged with applause from all around. If any in the crowd hadn't judged him a hero yet, they did after that. The girl suffered a broken leg and remained unconscious after her ordeal. She has been left in the care of Dr. Clarence Adams. I imagine that even without his proper education in the classics, he can still manage a basic treatment. The hole into which the girl fell is a cavernous structure extending into the Stygian depths. Adamon proposed immediately pluming its lightless depths, but Alexandra reined him in with my support, counter-proposing to explore it tomorrow when there were not children swarming the castle grounds. Addendum In hindsight, I seem to recall Adamon actively encouraging the children to pick up the stones in imitation of him. Combined with his efforts to move the rubble around earlier in the day, this set the stage perfectly for the supposed accident that transpired, and the all-too-convenient discovery of the caverns that would take a central role in unfolding events. August 9th, 1887 Like four Orphei, Lady Alexandra, Adamon, a servant, and I descended into the depths of the cave this morning and beheld its strange wonders. A small, rough stair took us to the landing from which Adamon had retrieved the child, who I would later learn is named Abigail. From that antechamber we entered into a long, steadily descending cavernous limestone hall our lanterns barely illuminating the dust-clouded gloom. In some places, the passage was barely wide enough for Adamant's shoulders. We came to a fork in our path, with one to our right reascending while the left continued further below. Concluding it would likely be briefer, we took the rightmost course upwards eventually coming to a bricked-up wall with sunlight peeking through. Adamon turned his strength to the task of demolishing the wall, and we emerged on the base of the hillside well below the castle. I hypothesized that this may have once been an escape or covert supply tunnel for the castle's inhabitants in the events of siege. Doubling back upon our path, we returned to the fork, and this time we descended still further down a long winding way. I noted that the musky air had acquired an acrid scent as we continued onwards. At length we arrived on the shore of a black lake so vast that our lantern light could reach neither its distant shore on the other side nor the ceiling above, nor penetrate any real distance into its depths. Near the water's edge was a great slab of blue-green stone, unlike any we had seen so far in the caves. 
I entertained the notion that the aquatic motif with which Erasmus's hallucinations manifested might have arisen from a forgotten childhood memory of venturing down to this sunless shore. Adamon suggested that we test the lake's depths and craftily volunteered the servant, much to the latter's chagrin and Alexandra's acquiescence. The man dutifully accepted his charge and slowly waded into the water. He only stopped when it had reached his waist, at which point he let out a terrified scream that something had grabbed his leg. He struggled against the water before emerging once again onto the shore. With that, we concluded our expedition for the day, though it was not without further discovery. On our return trek, Alexandra spotted a discarded pocket watch. It is of uncertain antiquity, but at least out of fashion before my grandfather's day. It certainly provides an intriguing suggestion as to the cave's last occupants. I savored my first breath of the fresh sunlit air of the world above, and gained new sympathy for the wretches of Plato's cave seeing the sun for the first time after a lifetime chained below and fed on nothing but shadows. I went for a walk around town, casually asking the townsfolk whether they knew of any tales of escape routes in the castle, or indeed any lore at all about it. They knew little except for idle tales of fairies dancing on the hillside in circles, tales which I'm sure can be heard in any town in the shires. I decided to venture to little Abigail's family abode to check up on her recovery. What passes for Scottish medical education had at least taught Dr. Adams to properly apply a splint, and she seemed to be on the mend, if strangely withdrawn and distant in her mood. I returned to the castle again that evening to find to my dismay that preparations were underway for a seance which the traveller woman had persuaded Lady Alexandra could be used to identify the source of the curse allegedly persecuting the Brown family. The supposed medium's chicanerous theatricality was laudable, with all the expected tapping under the table and on the windows. Even my skepticism briefly faltered when she mentioned a darkness below the castle, until I remembered that she had likely heard of the cave-in, and that her vague allusions could apply to any number of unpleasantries sure to reside within an old castle's bowels, such as catacombs or dungeons. Alexandra, Erasmus, and even Adamon appeared to be quite shaken by the performance regardless. I could only sigh as the woman started to explain to the Browns how she might relieve the curse with a ritual learned from her Egyptian grandmother. August 10th, 1887. I took the opportunity of the morning breakfast to explain my skepticism of the traveler woman to the Browns. 
The financial follies of aristocrats are all too perilous to indulge when the family fiscal stability is as precarious as theirs. Fortunately, I was able to convince them to see her charlatanism for what it was and bid them farewell. During this breakfast, I think I may have also made a breakthrough in reaching Erasmus, as I explained to him the promises that Alexandra had made to the town on the family's behalf, and the responsibilities that this would entail. At this, he requested to examine the family's account books, and to truly start discussing the family's investments with his sister. I can only hope that this represents a turn towards the better for the Baron. Yet, as if to demonstrate the Browns' irrepressible habit of employing eccentrics, a coach arrived after breakfast bearing an odd Irishman named Colm, who Alexandra informed me is a private investigator who had been investigating the circumstances of Erasmus's kidnapping. I was not privy to his full report, but I was led to believe that his inquiries were largely successful in Alexandra's eyes, though my nose's own report of the fumes from his quarters shortly afterwards suggested his heavy indulgence in opioids and other intoxicants, so I am hesitant to place trust in his reliability. A bricklayer with whom I had spoken yesterday agreed to come to the castle to apply his tradesman's eye to examining the collapsed floor and what I took to be an escape route at the base of the hill. He concluded that it appeared both passages had been bricked up at the same time, perhaps two hundred years ago, both quite quickly and inexpertly. Notably, this would have been long after the structure surrounding it was built, suggesting that the passage may have been previously in use for some time before being sealed. At least this puts to bed my notions of Baron Erasmus having encountered the lake in his forgotten youth. But it does make me wonder why the caves would have been sealed with such haste. I suggested to Alexandra, and she concurred, to bring in geologists to further examine the caves themselves. I've just been awoken to hear a commotion from downstairs. I then beheld Alexandra, in her nightgown, riding on horseback into the forest, wielding a rifle in one hand, and a torch in the other. It may have been a dream or phantasm of the night. It was not a dream. I've just treated Colm for mild testicular trauma, the result of one of the traveler children's well-aimed blows when Colm had discovered and accosted them for burglarizing the castle. Alexandra has taken it upon herself to ride after the family's carriage. To what end, I can only guess. I will see what comes of it in the morning. August 11th, 1887. What gratification I might take in seeing the Traveller family's charlatanism so clearly proven 
is undermined by my bafflement at Alexandra's response. She intercepted the clan's wagon on the road as it was escaping with their burgled goods, and she shot one of their pack horses in the head. She then escorted the family to the constabulary at gunpoint, where Constable Wiggs gleefully promised to see them all hanged for defrauding and stealing from the nobility. It would seem Alexandra had not anticipated such a harsh punishment, so she pleaded on behalf of the mother and children and earned their freedom, leaving the father to his presumed execution. It would seem Alexandra has not considered that this will likely leave the family destitute, as she tossed them out again into the cruel world. Whether in spite of or due to the decline in Alexandra's judgment, Baron Erasmus has continued to diligently shoulder his family responsibilities with a startling profusion of clarity and vigor carefully examining account books and asking pointed questions about the family's finances and investments. Perhaps the country air is working. I sought its virtues myself as I took another walk through Bolsover today. While there, I stopped again at Abigail's house to check on her recovery. I found her in a positive, albeit somewhat strange, mood. What truly took me aback was when she began speaking of her dreams of venturing into an underground lake, and then swimming in it with people within the water. She clearly possessed no practical knowledge of swimming, and acted as though she could breathe the water as readily as air, but the references to an underground lake seems improbably coincidental especially as it seemed that the lake's existence beneath Bolsover Castle remained largely unknown in the village as far as I was aware, and I confirmed that her parents had never heard about it. I began to form the first notions of an experiment and asked her parents if she might come to the castle tomorrow, to which they agreed. Abigail was delighted at the prospect of seeing Adamon again there. Our exploration of the Stygian lake itself continued as a small rowboat was delivered to the castle. Navigating it through the cavern's tight passages was a trial in teamwork and patience, but in the end we successfully brought it to the lake, and found Adamon was already waiting us on that sunless shore. He and Colm agreed to man the rowboat together to map out the lake's boundaries. Our explorers rowed off into the darkness. Their lantern light continued to shrink ever further until they were merely a fist-sized incandescence, but it refused to illuminate any far walls or limits to the lake's breadth. Suddenly, Colm's scream echoed across the water. Those of us on shore could only wait helplessly and wonder what had befallen them. Then the screams were silenced, and we were left only with waiting.
Eventually, the glow of their lantern light began to grow larger once more, and all too slowly they returned to us on the shore. Colm had been struck mute, and seemed to stare vacantly in a way that reminded me of victims of railway accidents. Adamant could offer precious little explanation as to Colm's condition, only that he had screamed after peering into the lake. I've spent the last several hours consoling Colm with tea, soft conversation, and patience until he found his words once more. We talked of his father's honourable conduct as a constable in London as a comforting topic to regain his mental footing before confronting the source of his outcry. I would likely entirely dismiss his explanation as the hallucination of a mind addled by opium, cocaine, and any number of other concoctions if not for Abigail's vivid dreams of swimming in the lake with the people within. For he said that when he looked into the lake, he saw corpses, innumerable rows upon rows of burial-shrouded corpses in legions extending deeper and deeper into the lake's infinite depths. The parallels between the two visions would not have been healthy for him to hear at that time, so I reassured him that it was merely a trick of the lantern light playing upon the surface of the water, reflecting and duplicating the images of himself and Adamin many times over as ghoulish doppelgangers. This explanation seemed to satisfy him. However, as I walked down to the kitchen for a late dinner, I overheard the servants talking with one another. The maid was refusing to head down into the scullery, because she claimed to have heard voices and sobbing down in the cellar. I could not work up the courage to ask her about what she'd heard, or even request a meal. So I retired for the evening. Addendum In hindsight, I believe many of Adaman's absences during this period may be accounted for him having been down on the lake's shores, or even within the lake, for whatever purpose he was pursuing. This would explain his unexpected absence when we arrived there with the rowboat. I suspect that this may also have been when the lake's influence began to truly take root in Alexandra's mind, as demonstrated by her erratic behavior described above, not to mention her holding the Traveler family as prisoners in the castle's lightless meat cellar, and her kidnapping of the family's youngest child to raise as her own, 
as I would later learn she had done by this point. Her complicity in the ensuing homicides over the next several days, both suspected and confirmed, demonstrates the rapidity of her decline into irredeemable insanity. I remain uncertain as to the veracity of what Colm says he saw in the lake. While my esteem for him has increased since my original writing, my assessment of his perceptions potentially being infected by intoxicants remains, compounded by the additional mental strain of his guilt for his part in taking the infant from the arms of its screaming mother just hours before. Furthermore, if my theories of the lake's nature are correct, then it may have also reacted with the narcotics lingering in his body to influence his perceptions. In any case, it seems unlikely that the lantern's light would have penetrated the water to a significant depth, let alone illuminate the multitude he suggested. However, if even a fraction of the bodies he saw within the depths were real, then based upon the width we've seen of the lake, it suggests a truly staggering number of victims. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this episode. I suppose it shouldn't be surprising that the good doctor would only think it worthy of a minor footnote, a little detail like Alexandra imprisoning a family in her castle's meat locker and kidnapping a child to never see his parents again. After all, they don't merit names as far as he's concerned, so why should their fates be of note? Self-righteous rant aside, we'll be finishing the report next episode, when the Browns' madness and Adamans' control of the town will truly reach their height. See you then. Hello, I'm Gregory Moss, creator and writer of On the Threshold. Thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying my little podcast, please share it with your friends, neighbors, enemies, really anyone who you think might enjoy it. This is a new podcast, so every new listener matters a lot. Our community may be small now, but with your help, together we shall grow and grow as one organism. Our being expanding until the whole of humanity hears and speaks with one voice, thronging in an inseparable union of minds and souls that shall echo through eternity. And if any mind can still be called your own, you will know that you made all of this possible. So yeah, I'd really appreciate you passing it on if you can. Thanks, and stay safe out there. Part 5 Further onward, the furnishings had long since decayed until nothing was left but a choking cloud of dust. 
Only errant scraps of leather suggested that this had once been a library, though even the memories inscribed upon the pages had faded to oblivion, their works forging meaning and understanding from the cosmos had drowned in the tide of entropy. The clawing had become a roaring, so deafening that it could only be coming from the room immediately above. The stairway gave no heed to its moldering surroundings, seeming to become even sturdier in its course, until at last I arrived on the final landing. The room was impossibly dark. I reached for a light, but found none. Yet, I saw the source of the clawing that echoed through the ceilings and floors and distractions. The End On the Threshold is produced and distributed by Live From Your Mind Productions under an attribution non-commercial share-alike 4.0 international license.